Hello, this is Ruslan Malinovsky. Hello, this is Roman Yeremchuk. Hello, I'm Sergey Rebro. And you're listening to Ukraine Post Football. of Ukraine Plus Football. It's been a transfer frenzy of a past week, which towards the end of it went into complete unprecedented levels of mayhem, even by Ukrainian standards. Mihailo Mudrik is finally, but surprisingly, an EPL player. Ruslan Malinovsky switched his Gasparini hell at Atalanta for the volcano heat of the velodrome at Marseille. And Viktor Sahankov's own great escape from the grips of the Surkis brothers and Dynamo Kiev. Completely contrasting business dealings involved in some of those as well. I've got Adam and Ray with me, as always, and a special guest will be joining us later on in the show too. So stay tuned for that. Yeah, thank you, Andrew. It's great to be back as always. I mean, Mudrick Steele. Blown, blown social media into a frenzy. But what's actually gone down this week? Just bring everyone up to speed, will you? Well, following our podcast special where we had this, I guess, battle between Chelsea and Arsenal, we didn't know where he was going to go, but it seemed like inevitably it was leaning towards Arsenal. And it was until about midway on Saturday. Got a load of information that has been shared by Shakhtar CEO Sadi Palkin as to exactly what went down with the transfer. Uh, he explained it to, I think, Sky Sports, The Athletic, who was interviewed by our friend of the pod, Adam Crafton. And he also spoke to Talk Sport. Essentially, what he said was that Arsenal and Chelsea offered the exact same fee of 100 million. So, there's a lot of Arsenal fans on social media and everywhere else uh, that were initially saying, oh, well, we didn't front up the costs and Chelsea came in with the better money. But essentially what it sounds like actually happened was that Chelsea and Arsenal offered the same fee, but Chelsea just offered better payment structure. So they're going to pay it sooner. They offered better bonuses, better add-ons, such as winning the Champions League, winning the Premier League and other things winning the Ballon d'Or not included in Chelsea's uh, add-ons, uh, which apparently, Sadiq Palkin says, were more realistic than the ones that Arsenal offered. And at the time, um, when this all sort of went into a fure and into its final leg, Chelsea uh, flew in to Turkey face-to-face, and I think that Shakhtar really liked that. They sort of saw the seriousness in in the fact that they wanted Modric, they spoke for nine to ten hours with representatives of Shakhtar. You know, Darius Serna was there, Akhmetov was on the phone because apparently he's been in Ukraine the whole war. Um, on top of that, there's also Modric came in, listened to their project about what their vision is for the next few years. Uh, obviously, is that going to be there for a long time? On top of that, Arsenal were apparently already out of out of the running by then. Apparently, Palkin said 
if those are sort of the terms that you guys are saying is final in terms of the payment structure and everything else, then we can't do anything. So Modric essentially had a choice. He had a choice of he can go to Chelsea where Graham Potter wants him. He had a call with Graham Potter where there is this exciting project where he's going to be starting more or less uh, straight away once he gets to a bit of full match fitness. Uh, on top of that, the general consensus is that Arsenal um, you know, may have come in for him in the summer or something, but Modric would have had to wait until then if he wanted a move. So it was unlikely that Modric would have left Shakhtar this window if it wasn't for Chelsea. So that was the ultimatum, essentially. Chelsea, wait till the summer, see if someone else comes in. And then obviously all the risks that ensue with that injuries, um, the price decreasing and all that stuff. Apparently the financial terms for Modric weren't too dissimilar to what Arsenal were offering either. So as far as the Athletic are aware, it's 97000 per year on this initial deal. And I'm sure that if he starts performing quite well, then he will be able to increase that fairly regularly. But I think what was most exciting about this is how everything sort of unfurled on social media, how it literally sort of went from one to another. There was the talk of the hijacking and everything else, albeit in context now, it's rather different. Um, it was quite funny to see how after Renat Akhmetov sort of posted a thank you to Mudrika, sort of an open statement. He also decided to include uh, news about a new charity initiative, um, saying that he's going to donate $25 million towards the families of uh, and the soldiers of Azovstal and Mariupol as well. And essentially some journalists in Britain thought that they should reword this um, and add in the fact that it was related to the transfer when actually it wasn't. It was more of another uh, classic from Shakhtar PR marketing team where they essentially just hit two birds with one stone, gave the charity news a lot more exposure than it would have got if it was just released sort of singularly um, on top of the Budrik hype. And it kind of worked in the end. And it's Palkin in those interviews that he's made also confirmed that this money was coming out of uh, Akhmetov, the billionaire's own pocket, not out of the Shakhtar club, which if it was coming out of the club, it would have been Shakhtar started the initiative, not Akhmetov on his own. So, yeah, a, a crazy, a crazy few days, um, but it's all done. Mudrik's had his first few training sessions and who knows, even possibility for a debut against Liverpool. But yeah, in general, it's how I would best sum up this as a crazy social media transfer saga. Like it, it's unprecedented levels of um, just fast forward news and everything that was going on where amidst all of this, all of this going on, on Saturday morning, Shakhtar's English account, which is a usually quite a conservative um, Twitter account in terms of what it posts, it posts like, highlights of goals and match reports, nothing like really bantery or sort of football twittery in any shape or form compared to some other English language club accounts, you know, where they jump in on memes and other stuff. This time Shakhtar were like playing to both Arsenal and Chelsea fans and trying to get a quick buck out of, um, in terms of quick buck as in a, a few thousand followers before all this hype slowly dies down after Mudrik is sold. And they were like, Hey guys, we've got some special news for you today. Keep following and we will we'll reveal all soon. And straight after that, they released the 
the calendar of their pre-season or their mid-season uh, table. So that was troll number one. Then they started showing like the eye emojis and a few, I guess an hour after that, it was Mudrik is awarded in person his 2022 Player of the Year award. Um with all the with all the you know all the players around him, he's got his last photos in. Little did anyone else know about that it was going to be his last sort of training session and everything else. And then later on, they did some more eyes, and then all the news started circulating that Chelsea have hijacked the deal. Everything's going on. Um, then Shakhtar actually re- released news that they're in negotiations with Chelsea. Like it's the kind of thing that you'd only hear Fabrizio Romano. Right, or David Ornstein from um, The Athletic. But this was a club saying this. This is like sort of the first time I've ever seen it. And then Chelsea also came out of that um, not too long after on their website saying, hey, we are currently in talks. Apparently it was already done by then, but it was sort of like a preamble for all of it. And I was on a podcast, a Chelsea podcast with some Americans uh, last night. And they were telling me that this is very sort of, um, a regular occurrence in American sports. So it seems like Todd Bowley is bringing this Americanization of the transfer market <laughs> to the Premier League, where we're going to be getting, well, I I don't know, It's it felt very surreal to me, all of this sort of social media stuff. Then before the official announcement or anything, Chelsea on their Instagram made about three separate posts. Go follow Mudrik, go follow him. And then they put his name in their bio, you know, like a girlfriend would do for a boyfriend and all this kind of stuff. It's removed by the time that we're recording this now. Once he officially signed, they removed it. But his followers went up about 350,000 at the time recording. I'm sure he's going to be at a million um, very soon. And I'm sure that must have been in some sort of contract clause or it must have been some sort of terms that Budrick got this hype because this, you could say, is the first... We've had this, um, how you'd say, Ukraine's, uh, well, Ukraine's war with Russia is sort of the first one that's played out on social media in real time. In comparison, this transfer saga was like real, played out in real time, but like from a player's perspective where he's liking Arsenal fan photos every single day, it's like a new post every single day, just as people say, twerking for Arsenal over the past sort of month or so. And in the end, he's at Chelsea. So the saga has finished. He signed an eight and a half year deal, eight and a half year deal. Unprecedented, insane. Apparently it's all to do with financial fair play and all this kind of stuff for Chelsea's perspective. But for the player, will he stay that long? Fingers crossed he can hit the ball. Uh, he can hit, he can hit, he he can hit the ball for sure, but hopefully he can hit the ground running very soon. Um, and all credit to him now he's in the Prem. Um, I'm, I am disappointed. I would have liked him to go to Arsenal just because I think that's a better environment for him at the moment, just with how they're winning everything. Arteta's slightly better manager, people person, just exactly what Mudrik plays to in terms of his uh, strengths and mentally. But... Hopefully, Graham Potter can sort him out and sort out that whole team out, um, despite having spent 500 million euros <laughs> since the summer. And that brings me on to the sort of the next topic. Adam, what's your take on it? Good move? Bad move? Where where exactly is this for you, especially having followed him quite religiously over the past three years? 
religiously, I like that. I do like that. I mean, first of all, this, you know, the talk of the eight and a half year contract, it's, you know, he's, he's not going to stay there that long. Um, it's, it's only been done so they can get through the financial fair play. The 100 million is split over eight years. So it's what's, it's about 12 million they've spent this year on signing him in terms of accounting. So it's, They've signed some French guy as well on a seven and a half year contract uh, just last week. For me, I'm happy that he's out of the UPL and he's in the EPL. That first and foremost. Um, yeah, going to Arsenal, who look like they're going to win the league um, already. Yeah, it would. It, it could have been a nice six months for him to to bed in and going into Chelsea. As one of one of my friends was saying to me on Twitter earlier, it's a club in disarray. It's 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 a mess. It's it's rock bottom. But the good thing when you go into a club that's in a big mess, it, it can't get much worse. And Chelsea's having its worst season in twenty years at the moment. So he's either just going to be somebody who's gone in there and given it a go and not been able to do do much about it. Or he could become a hero there. And it's up to him. We all know, everyone who's listening to this, uh, people across Ukraine know of his potential talent. We've seen it over the last 12 months in many games, both domestically, continent in continental football and for the national team as well. But... He's not been tested in the EPL wherever he went. It's going to be a new style of football. Last year, we said the same thing with Mikolenko. Chelsea fans, if you are listening, do give him time. It isn't. It's a new world he's going into. And there's a whole social media storm behind him. So overall for me, yeah, I'm glad he's gone. And yeah, Chelsea, it's a big club. There's going to be a lot of people watching him. He's going to he's going to be playing European football this year, and maybe not next season or after that. It's hopefully he'll be back regular either in the Europa League or Champions League over the next few years, and he's going to be playing at the top of the world game. So, you know, it's great news for me, and optimistic to see what happens. I'm just curious, guys. Obviously, Chelsea's next games against Liverpool, and uh, they, it's been labelled the El Shitico already. Um, do we think he's going to be ready to make his debut, or is it going to be after the FA Cup weekend against Fulham? Um, Andrew, I'll ask you first because you're obviously being in the UK, a bit closer to the ground, and then Ray. I'd love to know your opinion on the move as well. Um, I think he might come on as a sub. If he starts, I think that would be pretty ridiculous seeing as he hasn't played any competitive football properly um, since the end of November or mid-November even. Uh, so in my opinion, he's maybe can come off the bench, try and influence the game or something, and then he'll still have that week and a half to you know bed in a bit more a few more training sessions sadly i think that fa cup game would have been quite ideal 
um, for him to to play in. But sadly, Chelsea are actually knocked out of the FA Cup, so they won't be playing that weekend, which which is a bit a bit of a negative. But yeah, coming then he'll have his home debut against Fulham um, Friday night lights, and fingers crossed he can sort of avenge that loss that Chelsea actually got against Fulham last week. Dial M for murder, right? The classic movie title goes. And in our case, it's Mudrik. Uh, it's unprecedented in terms of the price and the term of the contract. I still cannot my, get my head around it. Uh, it's not that he's not worth it being the record January signing in Premier League. And the last January signings I remember were Torres and Carroll. And you know how, it, how that turned out, right? If you talk about eight years contract, the Galacticos era in Real Madrid lasted less. In eight years, from 2005 to 2013, Chelsea won everything in their history. And that's the period which Mudrik is about to stay in Chelsea. Personally, if you ask me, this is not even a fairy tale. This is chaos, okay? This doesn't happen in football, even American. No, no matter who, like Ronaldo goes to uh, whatever, Arab Emirates, Qatar, no one even remembers. And he's, imagine he stays there for eight years. Yeah, of course he can. I mean, Rivaldo played until 45, Romario. And here we have a young guy, Mudrik, the world uh, football superstar from Ukraine. Okay, let's sober up. On cards, we have a reputation of Ukrainians abroad. Now, every Ukrainian who uh, was sadly uh, moving away from uh, his home country last year, 2022, and unfortunately probably still does. So every Ukrainian feels that this guy is a representation. Less than Tihanko, less than Malina, let, let's be honest, less than those guys. But still, even those three is a good thing. But Mudrik is the top one is the number one because he's young right so that's what that's one step second step we he has to demolish like if we uh, let's let's not touch football right so he needs to shut up shove this instagram hype as far as he can and just work yeah that's football clear period now we had shevchenko in chelsea and that was a disaster clearly like after the fame he got in Milan, the status he had, he just moved to Abramovich under Abramovich wing. And that leads me to the third step, which Mudrik has to conquer, has to make, is to demolish the reputation of Chelsea being a Russian club, is to uh, make the Ukrainian reputation prevail in London. I'm not saying that like Ukrainian and Russian oligarchs should solve this out between themselves. But this matter, like you said, a million followers on Instagram, this is looking into the future. And we'll be touching on more about the transfers from Ukrainian League today. I'm talking about Tihanko from Dynamo. And that's when we can compare the ways uh, Ukrainians run their football now, a polar kind of ways. Definitely so. I mean, Andrew, great business by Shakhtar, though, 100 million euros. Essentially, I think is the final, but all credit to them. They've done it again. Yeah, somehow record, record Ukrainian player, record Ukrainian sale. Obviously, any Ukrainian talent could possibly be playing in the under tens or something like that. But 
but at least I think the foreseeable future, that record will take a lot to beat it, in all honesty. I think it could stay for a long time, really. Um, and if anyone's going to go for more, hopefully it will be Mudrik um, leaving Chelsea for a better club, if, if that comes to it. But I, I do love that analogy from Ray, where he can make a good reputation for Ukraine and Ukrainian football in a similar way that Shevchenko did in those late 90s and early 2000s, where literally you spoke to anyone in the street and you said Ukraine and they'd have no idea what that country was, but they'd go, oh, Shevchenko. Obviously, we're in a completely different scenario right now where everyone knows Ukraine, like from literally even in some remote Amazon rainforest. But what we're going to what we're going to get right now is from like a footballing perspective just to show that to people that maybe not don't follow the news anymore and just end end those general feelings that um Mudrik is not worth 100 million yes probably in the grand scheme of things he isn't you know based on pure footballing currency if you know what I mean, he's probably around a 40, 50 million pound player just from what we've seen. But it's been inflated. But someone's paid for it. If there's a demand and, so, and there's a buyer, they, they've got it. And um, Darius Erna, wow, what a sporting director. He stuck to those guns and he somehow did it um, as solid as he is in the boardroom as he was on the pitch. In this part of the show, we're going to have a deep dive into Malinovsky's transfer to League One. Now, who better to discuss the move, first impressions, and the players opening few games with us than France-based CBS Sports football correspondent, Jonathan Johnson. Welcome to the pod for the first time. How are you doing this evening, Jonathan? Hey there, guys. Doing very well, thanks. Obviously quite exciting here in Ligue 1 to, to have a title race to be reporting on again after PSG's results on the Sunday night. So very much looking forward to it and seeing if Marte can get themselves back into the reckoning. It seems like it's a good time for uh, for Malinovsky to be moving to Stad Velodrome. And, uh, you know, he got his first taste of uh, the, the volcano, as he said, I think, on uh, on social media earlier this weekend. So uh, no, it's, uh, you know, certainly shaping up to be a really exciting second half of the season now. Uh, definitely. So, Andrew, you uh, followed followed the move closely. First of all, how how was it structured again? Yeah, so it happened at the start of last week. Of course, I think it was all of the preliminary uh, talks and everything has been going on for a while now. Um, Marseille were interested last summer, um, and then it eventually came to a head uh, at the start of January. Essentially, I think the deal is initially it's a loan um, until the end of the season. And then there's the differing uh, kind of information. The official website says that it's uh, an option to buy, whereas other people, uh, some insiders like Fabrizio Romano and others say it's an obligation to buy. And it's a 10 million fee plus like around two to three million euros in add-ons. And I mean, for a 29-year-old, going to be 30 in May, quite a quite a bargain for the kind of player he is in my opinion um and quite a good signing for Marseille I had I joined a Twitter space with a load of Marseille fans earlier this week as well gave them a bit of a, an introduction there and yeah safe to say that they've got very high expectations for him I may have overshot them a bit in terms of 
my usual positive um way of uh, <laughs> plugging Ukrainian talent but um fingers crossed everything works out and I'm looking forward to hearing a bit more about how everything has played out in the past week or so um from Jonathan in a bit well definitely Jonathan I'm we're talking now after he's made two appearances first one coming off the bench second one starting and lasted for just over an hour both wins for Marseille but what's been the take I mean first of all, amongst the, the French media, and then from the fan base as well. I mean, there's, a, you know, there is a lot of, like, I mean, like Andrew said, you know, expectation is high, but there's always going to be that expectation when you move to Marseille to OM fans. You're one of the best players in the world if you're opting to join their club. You know, they are a club that's steeped in history, really, really passionate fan base. You know, they live and breathe their club, which is not always the case, uh, you know, with, with clubs in France, but Marseille definitely one of, uh, you know, the the, the larger-than-life clubs that, that you get in Ligue 1. So I think for somebody like him to, uh, you know, be, be joining them, certainly at this moment in time, uh, you know, it is... Uh, it's it's an intriguing move and it's intriguing because, you know, there's been a lot of debate about Igor Tudor so far this season. Somebody who knows the Italian league well, so will have known Malinowski uh, and his situation at Atalanta uh, when he moved to Marseille and, you know, perhaps was sort of part of that initial push uh, last summer, which Andrew mentioned. But also, uh, you know, Pablo Longoria as well, um, you know, the leading Marseille in this this project he knows the Italian league extremely well uh you know the feeling around the club is that they have got an absolute bargain I don't think that they are expecting fireworks immediately you know they're not expecting him to to be banging in uh you know uh, some of the the goals that that we've seen him score in quite spectacular fashion in Italy uh immediately but there is an expectation or at least a hope that uh, you know he can hit the ground running I mean to, to have already played uh you know over an hour in his second appearance got himself a booking as well inside of what 20 and a bit minutes in his uh in his proper debut his first outing so you know I think he's somebody who you know Marseille are you know hedging their bet with um a little bit you know they know that they've got a player who if they can unlock that talent uh, is definitely going to be able to bring something for them on the pitch uh, and they have enough time, uh, you know, to sort of get him back into his best shape, uh, and, you know, and try and get him functioning in that Igor Tudor system. And I think the crucial thing about this is Tudor has had a bit of a mixed season. Obviously, the expectations in the Champions League were to get out of the group that fell on its face quite spectacularly at the end of the group stage. But there have been some encouraging signs domestically as well. And after the initial um, sort of reluctance from the players to buy into Tudor methods, there has now been a recognition that Marseille are actually starting to perform better and with greater consistency once the players are actually bought into that. So I think bringing in players that Tudor uh, and Longoria, uh, you know, have identified as potentially playing key roles in, you know, for Marseille moving forward. Uh, you know, that's a, a very positive sign to, towards Malinowski and towards the potential role that he can ultimately play once he's, uh, you know, back uh, and in form and, and good fitness. Jonathan, uh, the OM fans obviously uh, have a uh, reputation. What do you think their expectations for this season and what are the aims for the rest of it? It's a good question. Uh, you know, Marseille fans are always extremely optimistic, extremely, I don't want to say unrealistic, but the their aims going into every season are pretty much the same. And that's to knock PSG off of their perch at the top of Ligue 1. 
personally, I think there are better clubs placed to do that this season. Uh, I would also add, and you know, people will say, oh, but that's because you spend years covering PSG, you're going to criticise Marseille. I've expected more from Marseille on the European stage for a while now. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, they came close to potential success in the uh, in, in the Conference League. Uh, I I really wanted that to happen for the good of French football. But realistically, I think that Marseille probably could have done a bit more, certainly in a continental sense, and probably could have pushed PSG a bit closer at times in the last couple of years. But there have been signs of improvement, and I think they're now closer to being maybe the title challengers that they aspire to, to being. The problem for them and for many French clubs is grinding out that kind of consistency and managing to balance uh, sort of domestic and continental hopes and, and expectations. And I think because of Marseille's history, the expectation is so, so strong every season that it kind of end up, ends up weighing them down. Uh, you know, both in the league and both in the in, in, in the Cups as well. And it kind of paralyzes the team at one point or another during the season. And I think if they can finally move on from that, uh, you know, they will be able to, to to challenge PSG in a more serious way in the in the years to come. Because at the end of the day, in terms of the size of the clubs and the reputations, Marseille are by far and away one of, you know, France's top two clubs. It's not a surprise to me, having followed the league so closely over the last couple of years, that you've got a team like Lens who are proving to be more consistent than Marseille at this moment in time. But sort of in terms of the squad depth and quality, I'd say that Marseille could aspire to sort of being in the position that Lens are in at this moment in time. So I think Malinowski is joining a club that certainly has high hopes um, to, you know, at some point in the very near future, be able to run PSG really close. Because you've seen a couple of clubs do it over the last couple of years. You know, Monaco have beaten PSG to the title. Lille have beaten PSG to the title. So there are clubs who have proved that it can be done. Uh, you know, and Marseille certainly have, on an individual basis, uh, you know, the quality within their group to, you know, to certainly be closer to, to PSG than they are right now. Following on from that, how exactly um, do... Marseille set up in that case so they've obviously didn't do as well as they were expecting in the group stage of the Champions League what kind of football do they play because obviously when Malinowski was Atalanta it was very sort of free-flowing attacking football um, sort of kamikaze style if, if anything um, under Gasparini is it similar uh, un, under Tudor or is it or is it just a bit more structured is is Malinowski going to have to sort of stick in his role a bit more rather than the I guess the the free roam that he was he was given a bit more to do at, at, at Atalanta yeah I definitely say that there is an a greater element of pragmatism uh, at Marseille and at Tudor uh, you know I think the days of sort of Marseille having their crazy free-flowing football uh, you know passed them by when they had Marcelo Bielsa in charge uh, you know but I think Marseille needs that structure um, you know they need they needed sort of something slightly less combustible after after San Paoli. Uh, you know, and I think despite a few teething problems, they found that now in Tudor. Uh, and I think as well there is an element of 
rearranging this squad at this moment in time. I think there's a few players who are probably going to move on. Obviously, there's a lot of speculation uh, about uh, Genduzi and, and his future, whether he's going to return to the Premier League. And that could obviously have quite a big influence on, on Malinowski after this month. Uh, you know, I guess we'll have to wait and see what happens between now, so mid-January uh, and the end of the, the winter transfer window. But, uh, you know, there certainly is a feeling that, like I said earlier, You've now got Tudor um, and Longoria reading from the same page, uh, you know, and identifying the same kind of talents. And, you know, they wouldn't be bringing somebody like Malinowski in for him to not play uh, a key role, in, in my opinion. Certainly, uh, you know, they wouldn't be agreeing for, you know, the, the option to buy to basically be an obligation to buy, uh, you know, if they weren't planning on him being a real critical part of that uh, first team setup moving forward. So I certainly think that, you know, he is coming in uh, and will be expected to play, a, you know, a consistent uh, role uh, moving forward for this side on the Tudor. And obviously, you know, we're having this discussion after the first couple of games and I caught the part of the game Saturday night, had a, a good look at it. And he's, so far, he's been playing in the, as a an attacking midfielder on the right hand side. Now we've seen him in the national team more recently play a little deeper than that in central midfield. I'm just curious to know where do you see him fitting into the Marseille lineup under it and in their present sort of formation style. Obviously, in January it may change. At the end of January, it may change if Guendouzi leaves. But pre presently, how do, how do you see him fitting in? I mean, it's a good question. I, I think a lot of Marseille's, uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily call them struggles, but the challenges faced by Tudor at this moment in time is to find a really, you know, reliable source of goals, uh, you know, within that squad because nobody, I mean, you look at the, the stats at the moment, nobody in the attack, uh, you know, has scored more than six goals and that's Alexi Sanchez not really a player that can be relied upon week in, week out at 34 years of age, but perhaps more, more tellingly, uh, you know, the second highest scorer for Marseille this season is actually Nuno Tavares, who's, you know, traditionally a left back. So I think that there is an, an element of Marseille needing to work out how to better structure their attack moving forward, not necessarily in a way where they rely on the, the, the strikers to score the goals, but some of these players who can step up perhaps from attacking midfield or, you know, burst into the box from deep and uh, get goals. You know, you've got a couple of players who do have a good nose for goal uh, in the middle of the park, you know, guys like Jordan Veritu, for example. Uh, you know, so I think that, you know, the hope will be that, that Malinovsky can certainly do, you know, something like that. And a lot will also depend, as it has done so many times over the last couple of years, on the fitness of Dimitri Payet as well. You know, is he a player who's realistically going to be able to come back in and feature for Tudor? Or is Malinovsky coming in as potentially one of the players who it's hoped, uh, you know, will be, you know, kind of capable of replacing Payet uh, moving forward? On the side note of French football today, uh, we have another Ukrainian in uh, the league, League Two in Bordeaux, Danilo Ignatenko, the defensive midfielder, the axe, as you might call him, because of his red card appreciation. Uh, how are things um, in League Two with Bordeaux and this guy? Yeah, he's uh, he's he's carving out a bit of a reputation for himself as uh, as, as something of a something of a hard man in uh, in Ligue 2. Uh, you know, things going fairly well for, for Bordeaux so far. Uh, you know, I don't think 
many people would have had them pegged as, you know, potentially being in contention to get themselves straight back up to, to Ligue 1 uh, at the first time of asking after dropping out of the league, given the chaos that surrounded the club at the end of last year and for much of the summer. Uh, you know, I think uh, he was probably in a position where he didn't even know if, uh, you know, Bordeaux, you know, would have him under contract for this campaign up until, uh, you know, uh, a very short spate of friendlies before the season got underway. So, you know, he is a player who has, you know, kind of established himself as a, a, a fairly uh, important member of David Guillaume's um, Bordeaux side. I wouldn't say it's the the most impressive Bordeaux team, uh, you know, in recent years. But then again, some of their more talented teams have really, really woefully underperformed in Ligue 1 uh, the last couple of years. I think what I would say about this Bordeaux side is despite the fact that they lack perhaps in a, a bit in terms of talent, there's a lot more personality there. And, you know, Inetinka is, is one of those guys who kind of, you know, fits in well with that. And I think the fans really appreciate having somebody who has a lot of tenacity, somebody who really... Uh, you know, wears their heart on their sleeve, plays with a bit of passion because there's been a feeling in and around Bordeaux. And Bordeaux, again, another one of those clubs, those French clubs really steeped in uh, a lot of tradition with a lot of success historically that, you know, has, with a fan base that's kind of been starved of that for, for years. So to be a player who clearly cares so much, uh, you know, I think that that feels really refreshing to those Bordeaux fans. Good to hear, to be honest. Um, fingers crossed as long as he continues in that spirit, um, start getting a few more starts and calls up, call-ups for uh, for the Ukraine national team. Uh, all beneficial and hopefully if they get promoted, uh, another season of league gun and the fact that he stayed at Bordeaux, sort of that loyalty is rewarded um, with playing in the top flight. I think that's more or less it today, Jonathan. Thanks for coming on. It's been really insightful to chat a bit about Malinovsky. Hopefully we can have you on in the future when he's got a fair few more games under his belt. Um, we can discuss that a bit more in detail. I know that at the very start of this pod, uh, well, at the start of this section, uh, we mentioned that Ren won against PSG. Just a quick one, because Shakhtar are playing them in the Europa League playoffs next month. Should they be worried, especially seeing as they've got rid of Mudrik, who is one of their big goal-scoring threats, or I guess their, their main talent in the team, sounds like they should be uh, based on based on tonight's result. This is a really weird one because I'd say in many ways it's a good draw for both teams. Uh, at the time, I don't think it was a particularly good draw for Shakhtar given the form that Ren were in. Uh, but since then... They've lost a number of key players, notably Martin Terrier, uh, to a pretty bad injury that's going to keep him out for the best part of a year. Uh, that is a big, big blow for Rennes. Uh, Rennes are also quite an inconsistent team. Um, they do certainly have the potential to be one of the best teams in uh, in Ligue 1. I think that they have the potential also, uh, you know, to be a, a stronger force on the European stage than, than they have been of late. They've sort of, you know, flirted uh, with a bit of a European run in the past. Uh, I do think, you know, sort of given the circumstances and the obvious understandable drop off for Shakhtar on the European stage this last year or so, uh, you know, the fact that Mudrik has gone now, this is a good opportunity for Rennes. But if they keep losing players to injury, uh, you know, some of those suspensions keep, uh, you know, piling up as well. They're not going to be able to 
you know, challenge for Champions League qualification and continue to make a deep run in Europe. I don't know if they will try and prioritise one over the other, uh, but I do think that Rennes, in terms of the squad that they've assembled when all those players are fully fit, they're probably one of the better placed teams uh, to balance both both domestic and uh, and continental duties. So I think I'd consider Rennes to be favourites going into this clash with Shakhtar, but uh, I think their recent experiences in Europe should show them that uh, you know they shouldn't be taking uh, a team like Shakhtar for granted, despite the fact that that Mudrik has moved on. You know, because I think a lot of the the discussion going into that matchup now will be the fact that oh Shakhtar have lost uh, you know their 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 main man for a big amount of money. Uh, you know, so this one should be a lot easier for Ren. I, I you know I think Bruno Genesio is um, is smarter than that. He's uh, you know a very very intelligent coach. And you look at the way that his Ren teams perform consistently uh, against PSG. He's a coach who I think thrives on the you know the the biggest of occasions. And this this game will feel like a, a big deal for Ren as well because they have this hope, uh, you know, this aspiration to be one of, become one of the teams that really starts to, to throw their weight around a bit in Europe. And like I said before, I think the thing that could mainly derail them at this moment in time is losing some of those key players to injury or suspension. So fingers crossed that they don't. Uh, and, uh, you know, from my point of view, they make it through, but also, you know, good luck to, to you guys because I know that, you know, Shakhtar continuing to, to make a, a deep run in Europe would be, uh, you know, a source of... Uh, of much needed uh, happiness and, uh, and and distraction. So, uh, if if I was to pick one Ren Ren player to to keep an eye on uh, over those two games, I'd say that it would be Benjamin Borja, somebody who didn't feature against PSG, but for my money uh, is is definitely one of the most consistent, uh, creative presences in the league. I think he's a fantastic player, very well rounded. Uh, and I think he's a player who might fly a little bit under the radar for Shakhtar in their preparation for this game, uh, given that he missed out in this kind of fixture. Brilliant. Well, we'll certainly be keeping an eye on them over the next month or so. But yeah, thanks a lot for coming on, Jonathan. That's the end of this part of the show. If anyone wants to find you, say, on social media, especially Twitter, what's your app? Where can they find you? Yeah, best place to find me is on Twitter and uh, you can find me at at J-O-N underscore Legosip and that's where you'll find like articles, videos, podcast appearances such as this one. Uh, all of that is the best way to, to find me talking about French football. So thanks a lot for having me on, guys. It's been an absolute pleasure. I look forward to doing it again soon. Thanks a lot. Well, that was, I mean, that was fantastic insight on uh, Malinovsky there. Uh, well, moving... <laughs> So maybe a, a slightly lesser light these days, Victor Sikankov. It looks like he's finally going to get out of the Dinamo cage and move to Spain. It's all a bit up in the air exactly how it's going to work. And Andrew, what's sort of the latest with this one? Well, from one transfer saga at the start of the show to another that has finally ended we've been waiting for years for Viktor Tankov to get his move away from Dynamo and it's done it's probably not at a club that anyone expected him to be joining at least not until last summer La Liga side Girona FC not too far away from Barcelona in uh, Catalonia yep the deal is 100% done he has left Dynamo he has joined up with his new club he's been unveiled with um his agent 
Pere Guardiola um, from SEG Group, who is also the owner, well, not the owner, the president of FC Girona. As we know, over the past uh, six months or so, we've been hearing stuff coming out of the Ecuador that Girona offered 10 million euros for Tankov in the summer. It was like in the final days, the final week of the summer transfer window. And Ecuador was like 10 million euros. And then you're going to pay it over the next three or f- three or four years or however long. No, thanks. I'm going to reject that. Because he expected Victor to sign a new deal or an extension on the contract that was expiring this summer, 2023. Victor Tankov did not do that. Uh, This winter break, he apparently has been in Spain for the past month, uh, negotiating with multiple different clubs across Europe, not the likes of Anderlecht, PSV and everything else that was never in Tankov's remit or wants. He always wanted to join a top five league. And it seems that despite he had some interest from the Premier League and that talks were ongoing there, in the end, he's gone for Girona because of the connections with his agent, because they offered him, um, I assume, good good deal uh, on his contract there. And on top of that, it's likely that he's going to become a starter straight away with the reaction that the fans are saying, like, oh, my God, how on earth have we snagged a 22 million euro transfer marked value player for next to nothing? Uh, essentially what's happened was that Tankov has signed, well, he had initially signed a pre-contract deal, which was meant to mean that he was going to join in the summer, regardless of what happened. However, due to suggested rumours that Tankov didn't want to go back to Dinamo um, due to potential problems with Ihor Sorkis, etc., and the fact that he actually wanted to earn the club some money, in the end, the club and well, Girona and Dinamo came to an agreement. Essentially, I think the deal is five million euros now uh, that they will be that they will be given, and on top of that, they get fifty percent off the next transfer fee that Tankov gets. Which, as far as I'm aware, according to Ihor Borbas, it, the terms mean not essentially that they'll get fifty percent of the entire transfer fee, but for example, if Tankov goes for 15 million euros in his next move. Uh, Jerome obviously keep 5 million just off the back. So I think that that comes out of the transfer fee that they've just paid for Tankov. And then they split 10 million euros each. So Dinamo get 5 million and Girona get 5 million. So in total, Girona keep 10 million and Dinamo get an extra five. Uh, still very, very discount on what uh, Surkis wanted, I guess, over the past two, three years from different clubs and everything else. Essentially, there were never offers that came in, but I've heard a lot about different negotiations with different sides that obviously never came to any fruition. And I assume that that was probably the frustration that came to Victor and how he wanted to leave Dinamo as quickly as possible to prevent any sort of... Um, forced contract extension and everything else that might have ensued had he returned to Dinamo uh, for the second half of this season. It's all done now. Um, he's okay. He was unveiled at the stadium. He's going to be wearing number eight. He, the the new stadium, the Montelivi, 
that a Girona plane is pet friendly. He had his dog be at his unveiling. And also in all of the different videos that the social media have shown uh, from Girona, you will never have seen Viktor Sankov smile so consistently and so regularly as you've seen in the coverage there, even like his first training sessions where players were slapping his head and his, uh, his opening press conference, which was quite difficult to understand because there's quite some bad translation going on because I think for now, Viktor can only speak English, but a very high level of English, which is always a positive. Um, he had his dog out for, for that opening, um, the opening unveiling. And yeah, he looks to be very happy and content with himself. Fingers crossed that he can sort of make a good start to life in La Liga. I'm not sure whether he'll be able to be ready to start playing straight away. They play Barcelona, I think, in a week uh, and a half's time. That would be quite a nice Catalan derby if he can make his debut then. Maybe try and get something of a Conor Planca-esque debut and then build on something that Conor Planca couldn't do and stay in La Liga for maybe a season, a season and a half, and then get that move to maybe even a bigger side, either be it in the Spanish top, top, top flight or somewhere like... Man City, <laughs> because obviously Girona are part of the City group. So I think logically, the next step possibly could be a Man City. Obviously, he'd never be a starter at Man City, but if he became a squad player, you know, the likes of Amares or something like that, that would be pretty sensational. But we will see how everything unfurls. However, he has escaped from the golden cage that is Dinamo Kiev, and um, all the good luck to him. Oh, Ray, I'm sure you've got lots to say on this. <laughs> I mean, that's what I was saying, right? This is the difference, and that's the old Ukraine we're dealing with. It's in abundance in the clubs like Dynamo. And, uh, you know, it, I've been coming back, like a recurring uh, memory for me of Tsikhankov is that he's never been a stand-up guy. He's He's been a leader, but he's he's been a captain in 20 years old. And neither is Birna, even when he scored to Spain, no, no, no one's like, well, we all remember Shaparenko's goal to France, but Tsihanko was scoring to Spain. He, I think he went on as a sub, and he's like, okay, well, that, that's Tsihanko, right? But he never established himself as the guy who can actually um, leave uh, Ukraine, uh, stay somewhere, sign a contract, and, you know, fight his way through. I mean, uh, the, if you talk about circus, I mean, he's, he's got a complete advantage of him. He doesn't have an agent like Dario Serna. He doesn't have a backup like he has Smalichuk. I mean, Smalichuk can whatever. Uh, and um, you know that um, in terms of that, uh, as you said, Tehanko is scared to come back. That's all you need to say. I mean, the leader of the, some people call it, the most renowned club in Ukraine's history, uh, in Ukrainian football, is scared to come back to the legendary club. I mean, picture that, right? draw some analogies with the greatest clubs in the world and see what we can have. The mo for me, it was the least expected move of, uh, I don't know, in 2020s of the decade, because, <laughs> I mean, this guy, uh, how many times we praised him, how many times he um, just let it slide. He was just, he didn't answer our expectations. He was just shy. He did his job. He, sc he scored these goals to Lugano or Yablonek. Also, lots of injuries, Ray. He's made out of paper. Yeah, probably right. You know, but I, I mean, my favorite player of the um, 
21st century is Arjen Robben. So <laughs> it doesn't tell me much. <laughs> uh, the point is, um, it's it's a good it's a good thing. He's 25. He's got a lot to offer, albeit um, the last player I can recall moving to Spain in such age is not Konoplanka. I somehow remember Salenko. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why. Maybe it's Freud, you know, Freud talking inside my head. But uh, let's wish the guy all, all our best. We need, we, need, we need men. We need bodies in Europe. This, this, for me, is something that needs to be mentioned here. I, I was thinking about this earlier. You know, back in 2020, when we first started making the podcast, we were talking regularly about the Belgium League, and that was where Ukrainian players, if they got out of out of the cage, they would wind up in Belgium, and you know that seemed to be it. Now, in the last 12 months, we've seen three players go to the EPL. We got these guys going to La Liga. Malinovsky's gone into Liga. Kovalenko still plodding around in Serie A, and. We're no longer talking about the mid-range, but we're talking about the big five. And it's, it's pretty cool, isn't it? <laughs> you know, we got, I, I've said to people in the UK a lot that there's this golden generation of young Ukrainian talent. People have mentioned Zabani, you know, endlessly as one of the top, top guys. For me, Sudakov and Notcharekko and, and the like as well. Uh, I'm, what I'm really excited about now is with Mudrik going, all right, Sakankov has been thrown a bone, it seems, by you. That's why I had to laugh, and I'm sorry if you could hear it. Uh, so to get this right, Andrew, his agent has, is the brother of Guardiola, and he's got him a contract, uh, a city group club, and Guardiola's like the manager of the senior team in the city group collective. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Okay. I'm not expecting Sagankov to get much game time. <laughs> um, but hopefully, you know, more eyes are going to be on Ukrainian talent coming through. And if we're putting the national team at the front of everything, these guys playing top league in the top leagues, it's only going to help their development going forward. Or, I mean, maybe there's an argument. I don't know, Ray. Um, is it going to hurt future development because there's going to be all this talent's going to be leaving at a, a younger age? I mean, that's the creation way, right? We talked about uh, like Dario Serna today. Uh, that's what they did. And th this is a healthy way. This is what we've been dreaming for, uh, like from the day we started the pod, right? We've been talking about the healthy system of uh, players moving, of development of the players. It might uh, be an icebreaker. It might be an icebreaker in terms of transfers where Mudrik moving away, and this is the example of uh, doing business in a civilized way. I mean, as civilized as it can be if you deal with Americans and you're getting 100 million for eight years, but this is a huge contrast to dynamic of business, and that's what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And yes, I hope when you, the new talents would rise, like Sudakov, Bundarenko, Zabarny, Shaparenko, um, and that's what we're looking at. And these are our hopes for the future. Uh, definitely so. It's funny you mentioned Bondarenko there. He's, his name's popped up. I've got to say, Andrew, you were the one that directed my attention at him, and he's a he's a talent. In any any truth in these rumours about Deserby wanting to link up with him? Yeah, apparently so. 
apparently he's looking at um, Bondarenko. I don't know whether it's like any serious talks or anything, but he's certainly interested in him and in obviously Matvienko, who I think has been, in, been involved at Brighton or interest ever since the Zerbi got there, really. And I think it would be a good move for both of them. One thing I saw today was a photo of uh, Levi Colwell, who is a very good centre-back who's currently playing at Brighton. He's on loan from Chelsea. And they, there was a photo of him shaking hands with Mudrik at the game from the director's box. When Levi Colwell returns, inevitably returns to Chelsea in the summer, then there's going to be a gap at centre-back. And I could very well see Matt Vienko possibly filling that in. And um, whereas Bondarenko, I think that might, you know, we'd probably have to tease out how much Shakhtar want for him, how much Brighton would be able to spend, because they certainly aren't going to be spending anywhere near 100 million or even probably like 20 million on, on certain talents. They're not Leeds, for example, who literally bashing the cash every left, right and centre these days. Um, just on the topic of this sort of miscellaneous part of the pod, um, Aside from obviously De Zerbi, he's doing really well in the Premier League. Him and Maldera tearing Liverpool apart. And wow, in all honesty, I'd, I'd love to see Ukrainian go there because I think it would just, you know, playing under him and sort of maybe getting the full package of the De Zerbi experience that they didn't get because of the war and the fact that he left and everything else would be very good for them. Dovbik uh, has been rumoured to be going to Turkey. That is, as usual, just bollocks because it's um, from Photospor. If you ever see Photospor as the source of any um, transfer news from originating from Turkey, it's a load of rubbish. And finally, I think, well, maybe not the biggest news, but maybe a bit of a surprise left piece to news. Alexander Petrikov has obviously had his contract non -re not renewed. He has left the national team setup, I assume, with all of his coaches. Alexander Shrovkovsky is now assistant to Mircea Luchescu, possibly maybe his heir if Luchescu leaves mm. in the summer. Who knows? But as far as I'm aware, well, Petakov has been unveiled as the new Armenia manager. And it looks like their scouting is similar to that of Dinamo Kiev's. Um, Beats. <laughs> <laughs> Beat uh, Ukraine, beat Armenia twice. Oh, that guy looks like a good manager. Get him in. But in all honesty, um, I've been looking at a lot of Armenian reaction. They're very excited about him. They they know that he's going to be bringing the youth through, um, play some all right football. If he's got a bit of time, a bit less pressure, hopefully he can sort of instill the way he wants to play there. However, from a Ukrainian perspective, there's already the questions is he going to be calling up the players based in Russia? Is there going to be a conflict of interest? Um, is the fact that he even went to Armenia uh, sort of a semi-pro-Russian position because Armenians or the Armenian government vote against things uh, like Ukrainian resolutions in the UN and all that kind of stuff? Personally, I mean... He is a man of the Soviet Union. Yes, he's been showing very much loads of patriotic position Ukrainian-wise over the past year, and I massively respect him for that. If it, once the ESPN documentary on him comes out with on the national team in Europe, I recommend everyone watching it because it's it's so it's so eye-opening and brilliant. Um, sort of gives you a whole new perspective on what he is like as a person. I think that he look he's sixty-five. 
he's not going to be learning any new languages. He can go there speaking Russian relatively easily, deal with that. I guess the only questions will be, will he be calling up like Spurtsan, who plays for like Krasnodar or something, and he's their best player. Apparently there's really talk, like there's some rumours, hey, mate, he might call up Avagimyan um, from Alexandria. He might give him, um, you know, an Armenian passport and stuff like that. <laughs> Mkhitaryan might come back out of retirement to, to join him and all this kind of stuff. So it seems exciting. And just at the end of um, today's Tato de Kep, so they they revealed that apparently Andriy Pavelko, because he's quite close to the Armenian uh, Football Federation president, he played a role in facilitating this and ensuring that Petrokos essentially just gone from job to job without too much of a gap in between. But what this does mean is that there is a gap in that hot seat in the Ukraine chair. Now the big question arises, is Rebrov going to be in charge for England? If not, who is going to be in charge? Mihailichenko, one of those UAF vice presidents is going to get the sort of caretaker role before Rebrov gets it in the summer when his contract allegedly ends or is easier to break with Alain. Who knows? Nothing's been discovered yet or noted or even rumoured. So we will see. But um, I think that's a good place to end. All right, Adam? I agree. I agree. That's going to be a great topic for a future pod. Definitely so. Um, it feels like another whirlwind transfer window, doesn't it? It's, it's great fun. Uh, we'll see. We'll see what news crops up in the next seven days as well. Everyone's because no doubt there's going to be something with a, a Ukrainian player at the forefront of it. But yeah, Ray, Andrew, it's been been great tonight. I hope hope you two have enjoyed it as much as I have. And to everyone at home, uh, till next time. Take care, stay safe, and goodbye for now. Bye bye. Oh, oh, oh,